Hello and welcome to the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast. I'm Mel Luizu and together with my guests, we explore all different aspects of leadership in higher education. With inspiring stories, practical tips and a little bit of fishiness, this show will help you dive deep into the leader you are and climb high, unleashing your power and potential. Dive deep, climb high, can-do leadership in a world of can't. Hello and welcome back if you're a regular listener to the show. A very warm welcome if you're joining us for the first time. This podcast has been created to help leaders in higher education. My aim is to create a community that can learn and grow together. To do this, I need your help. The more people that download, subscribe, rate and review this show, the more the podcast algorithms will ensure it pops up across the globe. I love the community we are creating and together with your help, we can encourage even more people to join us. Today, we're going to be exploring senior leadership roles within higher education and the skills, experience and knowledge you need to climb the career ladder. With over 25 years experience in estates and facilities management recruitment, it would be fair to say my guest has a brilliant understanding of what it takes to be a successful leader in our sector. So I can't wait to dive into this conversation. Please welcome the hugely knowledgeable talent that is Michael Hewlett. Michael, hello. Good morning. How are you? Oh, I love this intro. Good. Fantastic. (laughs) I don't normally get such positive um, affirmation in recruitment. This is brilliant. (laughs) well we have known each other a fair few years and there was a time when I came to you and said oh where do I go next what do I do next so that's what we're going to be talking about today senior leadership roles so it doesn't matter if listeners aren't a senior leader now I think it's really helpful to understand if that's the career path that people want how how they get there and, and what skills and experience they need But before we do that, would it be okay if you share a little bit about your own career path and how you've ended up where you've ended up? By complete fluke, actually, like a lot of people in recruitment. So I I graduated um, from Leicester University in 97 and took a year out because I didn't know what I wanted to do, actually. So um, I got a job in my local job centre down in Hampshire, helping people um, find jobs. and actually really enjoyed that. I found that really really um, rewarding and a lot of people have been out of work for a long long time as well six months a year lacking huge amounts of confidence so I really enjoyed that um, talking to people finding out what they wanted to do and then matching them up to jobs I didn't want to stay in the job centre so um, I went to a career graduate fair up in London at the Islington Design Centre and I met the team at Hayes so I met the um, the graduate training manager at Hayes. She asked me to come along for a group interview, which was quite daunting at the time because I was sort of 21, not huge amounts of um, confidence myself, actually, and then had to go into a group interview. But fortunately, all the topics that they had were things I knew about. So we talked a lot about politics and society. And I just graduated with a history and politics degree. So actually, all the things that we were asked to talk about 
and we all had to um, take out a, um, a topic um, to present on and mine was um, the Conservative Party which was great so I had to do like short speech on the history of the Conservative Party so that, that was fantastic and I got the job so uh, I spent um, seven years at Hayes in public sector recruitment so facilities management a bit more on the operational side than I do at the moment so I was recruiting um, cleaning managers security supervisors and and lots of um, blue collar staff as well which which I, I really really enjoyed and then the former sort of regional director at Hay set up um, MRG in um, 2008. And I've worked with Simon for many, many years. And we shared a lot of the same values and the same behaviours. And I really respected him. And I also really fancied working for an SME as well. But I think, to be honest, I always thought I was probably a big business kind of person, a, a sort of PLC person. I always kind of visited myself working for a big PLC. But then when I joined MRG in 2008, I, I really liked it. I really liked working for a small business, an SME where you have that opportunity to really have an impact and change things. So 16 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> that's amazing. And I'm presuming that's quite unusual in recruitment to find people that stay that long. Really unusual. It has a high attrition rate recruitment and people tend to move around a lot. And I think a lot of people takes a lot of time as well to find an area that they're particularly passionate about. I never wanted to work for the sort of banks and law firms and, and that kind of Canary Wharf city sort of environment was never really for me and at Hayes I spent a lot of time working in, in local government uh, did a lot of work in house associations as well and started a little bit of university work at Hayes and that's what really grabbed my interest in higher education and and then when I joined um, MRG in 2008 I set up the higher education team and it's a real passion of mine and um, yeah I've not really deviated out of that in the last 16 years so I've kind of like found my found my tribe as such so um, yeah I just love higher education. Which is why I said there is nothing that you don't know about our sector. I mean, it's amazing. I know from when we've had conversations, I've had conversations with other members of the team, that you're really, really knowledgeable and passionate about HE, which is wonderful. I love it. Yeah, I, th I think you've got to know why the, the universities are there. And you know, I know it sounds really sort of trite, but they do literally change lives. And, and the people that you recruit for them at the front edge of that whether it's you know student accommodation or um, cleaning security teams or people doing the sort of campus um, development. So they're such important jobs, especially now, I think, with what's happened since COVID, I think the mental health agenda is so prevalent and the people that work in student accommodation teams. And I know you did a podcast with Student Minds recently, which I listened to, which is fantastic. And they're doing such important work. And I think the, the leaders that I recruit for the universities could you know, be saving someone's life. You know, that intervention that a student accommodation officer makes with a student could change their complete life. So, yeah, I feel a sense of responsibility as well. But I just love working in those areas. And, and I know you've, you've worked with lots of the same clients that I have. And you get some real characters in, in the teams as well. And, yeah, they just want to make a difference. So it's an absolute pleasure working in that kind of environment, really. And it's hard to leave. I don't think I ever will, actually. So I think I've probably got another 20 years before I retire. I don't think I'm going to move outside of HE. Fantastic. I love it. I love it. I love it. So. Let's dive into the, the senior leadership roles, particularly that you recruit for within higher education. So over the time that you've been recruiting for those, have you seen a sort of change in the required skills and experience and knowledge that people are looking for? Or is it the same now as it was when you started? No, I think I think it's it's hugely different. I think going back to what I just talked about about the mental health side and the well-being side, I think pastoral support of staff has, has never been more important. So whereas I think before some of the the skills that people were looking for, you know, might have been on the capital development side. So you'd be building a construction scheme, 
or you'd be looking after an outsourced contract. It was quite technical. But now I think it's actually the pastoral support of the team. So if you are developing a £50 million capital master plan, how do you support those project managers on the ground to be able to do their job? Even if you're outsourced an FM contract, whether it's cleaning or security, you've still got an in-house management team and that's very highly stressed. You're dealing with academics that might have issues with you know, heating, cooling, floods, a whole host of different things. How do you support those people on the front line, whether it's the team leaders, the supervisors? So I think it's that pastoral support of staff is a little bit more important. So I think the sort of emotional intelligence, and the soft skills of leaders is so, so important. So I think the job's gone from being a kind of property role to now a people role. And I think if you look at IWFM or lots of conferences now, it's all focused on that. It's, I think FM and estates, is, it's a people-focused job rather than a technical building-focused job. So I'd say that's probably the, the biggest change I've noticed over 25 years. And that, for somebody like me, is really pleasing to hear because obviously I came up, as you know, through the the commercial side, sort of more the the hotel front facing, very much about the customer and and the students and the people that you work with. And interestingly, my career journey was that I ended up in estates, and I always used to say that you know the commercial side, we're the people side, and the estate side was always the the building side. So it's really interesting that you are are saying that actually things are changing. So with the candidates that you're seeing, with the people that you place, are you seeing that they have adapted to that change, or or they're still on that journey? Yeah, I think one thing I've noticed a lot that. The directors of states that we appoint aren't always now architects and building surveyors. So you see a lot of people that come up from your background, the soft FM background. So we've just recruited the new director of states at the University of Northampton. And Tracy came up from a soft FM background um, at Hertfordshire. So her experience was front-facing customer services. And Hertfordshire is a modern university. They've got great sports facilities. They've got great restaurants. Um, catering is absolutely fantastic. The student experience at Hertfordshire was just amazing. And now because of that track record, she's moved into being the director of estates. And I think 15 years ago, you wouldn't have seen that so much. Um, and I think there's more crossover now between Cubo and Ord as well. So you see people that come up through the Cubo background are now moving into um, a director of estates post. So that's been the biggest change that before, you, unless you were an architect or a building surveyor or, or a project manager, there's no way you would have been the director of estates. But you're seeing huge amounts of people coming up from that com- kind of commercial background. I think it's soft skills as well, um, which, are, which are really, really important. And I think one of the things I like to see is people who are the deputies then step up and have the competence to go for the director of states role as well. I think that's that's great to see. So if you've been the head of facilities, then you become deputy director. You might have maybe taken on the hard FM, then you take that jump up into the number one role. So yeah, for anyone listening from a soft FM background, I'd say yeah, really go for it. And time couldn't be better actually. I think COVID has really changed the frame as well um, in terms of that mental health support and the pastoral support of staff and. And with hybrid working as well, you need more nuanced management styles and and different ways of managing because managing people remotely is so different to managing people on campus. So I think the whole management style has massively changed as well. That's really interesting because I have spoken to people that are in the the sort of heads of or, you know, the AD role, but actually sometimes they're their own barrier to that next step up. So if somebody is listening to this and they are in that head of, or they're in that AD role and and they want to step up, what would you say to them? What would you say to them to go out and do or learn or participate in, in order to, to prepare themselves for that, that next role? I think it's having a project you can put your name to, isn't it? A change management project or a transformation project. And you might've, 
brought in a new CAFM system. So you've you've completely integrated and you've put together you know, your asset management, your PPM and, and all the help desk together um, and demonstrate you've actually made a, a tangible difference. Or it might be you've outsourced you know, TFM contracts or it might be you've insourced it. So actually, when you're moving into a direct estate, what people want to see is that you can devise and implement a strategy. So you know, a CAFM, depending on the size of the organisation, could be a huge undertaking. And, and to rationalise an, you know, an estates management plan with a plan maintenance plan is, is a huge undertaking. And that's what directors do, don't they? They devise a strategy, then they deliver it. And I think sometimes people on the soft FM side probably don't have enough confidence in themselves or what they've done to be able to translate that across. But Anyone who's ever ran a big outsourcing project, I mean, that's a huge undertaking when you've got procurement, you're going out to the market, you're doing market testing and, and going through that that program management is a big project. So I think grab hold of a project. I think that that's the biggest thing to do is you've got to be able to demonstrate that you've gone through a change management or transformation piece and you've been the one driving it as well. It's not that you've been part of a team of 10 people doing it, that it's been, it's been your baby and, and, and you've been the main driver. That would be, that'd be the biggest thing, I think. Yeah. And as you were talking there, I love that because what was coming up for me, and I say this with the experience of being on the the commercial operation side, is that often people find it hard to let go. You know, as operators, we're often like, we've got to make sure it's right. We've got to be there, you, you know, head full role if, if we don't. And actually that step into senior leadership is not about having all the answers it's about being able to to hold that vision, keep people on track, but also, and that's where I think very much that people side comes in because actually you're supporting those people that have the knowledge and experience to deliver it and you don't have the time to do that anymore. So I think that is often one of the biggest changes as well. Yeah, you, you can't be a discipline expert in everything, can you? If you are the, the leader, you're a director of states or a director of facilities, you can't be an expert in building surveying, structural engineering, M&E, cleaning, security, business continuity. Nobody can. You become a generalist, don't you? And actually, that's where people coming up from an FM background don't give themselves enough credit. Because arguably, if you come up from an FM background, you've got a more wide ranging background than someone who's been a building surveyor or someone who's been um, an engineer who's come up to be a leader. Because actually, in facilities, you, you might have done front of house, you might have done security, cleaning, catering and you've done the maintenance as well so actually arguably if you come from an fm background you've got a wider discipline base than someone from a, a sole discipline technical background absolutely and i think the other thing as well is having moved away and started my own business in in 2015 and having been in the sector for many years before that i think the other thing is that actually the roles are huge they're so broad when you think about it in in universities it's it's a microcosm of, of society really and often an estates director in those senior leadership roles touches every part of that and and so it is that that breadth, isn't it? And I mean, for me, when I was in that sort of role, that's what made it really exciting. And and when you come out of that, you think, well, every you know senior leadership role is like that, but it it's not. And that that's the beauty of it, but also the challenge of it. Yeah, you're right, and I think that that's where the interest comes from people to move into the sector. You're right; a, a university campus is like a small town, especially when you've got accommodation on site. It's it's a, it's a sense of community. Um, and that's far more interesting, isn't it, than if you've been a facilities director running a bank or you know, a corporate portfolio of offices when you can come across to a university. And I think in things terms of sustainability and carbon, et cetera, it's like, they're like living labs, aren't they? So you get people who are really interested in sustainability. There's no better place to come than a university. 
especially with all the students on the site that want to get involved in these things. Um, so that's that's another area which I think is is undersold um, as a career move. That kind of sustainability, societal impact you can get when you come and work for a university. Yeah, and just sort of changing tack slightly, but but not too much. Have you seen as the sort of change in focus on the role has changed? Have you seen the recruitment? process sort of change and and reflect that to to what it was 10 15 years ago yeah massively it's 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 so much more structured now so whereas before you'd have a formal interview and and a presentation and then you might have a sort of fireside chat with the you know coo or the vice chancellor afterwards and now it tends to be a lot more um campus tours and um, and meet the team stakeholder sessions there's huge amounts of group sessions now so what a lot of universities tend to do is a dual session so you have one meet team so if you're the director of estates you'd meet your head of maintenance your head of facilities you know your head of health and safety and have a round table discussion but you'd also have one of stakeholders as well so it might be you know that you know, the head of faculty for medicine, you know, the head of humanities, it might be the director of finance, and, and you all sat around a table talking about issues. And what they're uh, assessing there is nothing to do with technical skills, is it? Because actually, none of the people, especially on the stakeholder side, are, are technical people. So they are, they're academics, what they're looking for is how polished someone is, how articulate someone is. But I think the other the other thing is the emotional intelligence aspect of it. And that's the, the kind of invisible boxes, you know, will this person come in and represent the university in the right way? Will they be able to develop the team? And will there be a supportive yeah, manager in it? And HR likes to see that as well, because there's so many personnel issues that arise now around yeah, mental health and neurodiversity. And the whole EDI agenda is, is so prevalent that you want that director to be really sharing the same values. And that's where a lot of people fall down, actually, when they come from outside of the sector into universities, that EDI piece in the interviews. As soon as it gets on to EDI and they start talking about diversity and inclusion, some people do struggle. So I think that'd be the one thing I'd say to anyone going into a university panel session or a stakeholder session is really understand what EDI means, but also what it means to you. And, you know, being really clear about what your views are around diversity and inclusion, because you need to be really authentic. And if it's just a kind of stock answer in an interview, people see through that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I guess that's part of the wave of change that that we're, we're seeing. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think when you're doing a stakeholder session and you're sat around a table of 12 academics or you're sat around with your um, direct leadership team, then they're not necessarily interested in whether you've got a building surveying degree or whether you're a fellow of SIPSI or, you know, whether you've done you know, level seven in IWFM. What they're really looking for is, you know, can you motivate a team? Will you be a calm head under pressure? Because if you're an academic, what you want from the director of estates is that you want issues to be dealt with really quickly, don't you? And you want the communication to be really strong and you want them to be collaborative. So actually, I think the thing that gets people the job are those soft skills. Um, there will always be core things that people are looking for, though. They might want a degree, for instance. You know, sometimes they like to see MBAs. There's a kind of core level of competency that they expect. But actually, what gets you the job is the soft skills. It's emotional intelligence. And so I'd say the kind of qualifications get you in the door, but it's the other aspects that are going to get you the job. Interesting. Interesting. And I suspect you've already answered this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So in all the, the candidates that you see coming through, the CVs that you get, is there one particular area that you think actually we're lacking a bit of this within the sector that we could do with more of for people to be successful in those senior roles? There needs to be more female candidates and there certainly needs to be more BAME candidates as well coming through into leadership roles. I think if you looked at board and you know senior leaders across the sector on the state side is is 
predominantly white males um, and it doesn't represent you know society it certainly doesn't represent the student community or, or the academic community so I, I think I'd encourage people to do is that you know if, if you are from a Bain background or, or you're a female looking to move into the leadership roles I think you know your time is now I think you've never had more processes which, which was suit you know blind shortlisting there's lots of competency um, matrices now which are based on core competencies I think Whereas before um, there might have been elements of bias within the kind of processes, that's completely taken out now. And because of these stakeholder sessions and because of the meet the teams, it's about the softer skills. And that's where people from an FM background will be able to come to the fore because you'd be able to demonstrate those those skills. So I think um, the leaders aren't as diverse as, as they should be. That's a real problem for all um, organisations, not just in higher education. I heard something about FTSE 100. There's, I think there's less than, I think there's about five female chief execs, which is just a really, really small amount. I think there's a, a huge way to go, but I think things like blind shortlisting are great. So that completely takes out any unconscious bias at all. And I think when you look at the the scoring criteria as well, if, if you're the, the line manager, you've got to make sure that the scoring criteria is based purely on competencies and is based on behaviours and values. And that takes out the unconscious bias as well and it strips it out. So I think the, the processes now are far more weighted towards um, inclusion, which, which is great. Okay. So any BAME people out there, any women out there, get their applications in. Yeah, I, th I think that there's a huge push internally within universities. HR departments want those leadership teams to be more representative of, of the wider community. I certainly do as well. And it's up to us as the external recruiters who are partnering with people to help them with things like unconscious bias. And, and we do um, EDI training as well as part of um, MRG to, to help people with that. And I think the blind shortlisting is, is great. But I, th I think it's, it's about confidence as well, isn't it? I think sometimes people look at kind of structural inequalities of organisations and think that they can't turn around. But I think you've got to see that the vice chancellors, the director of HR, and everyone in that entire structure wants these things to change. So there's no better time, I think. And I think that will then, in 20 years' time, will look completely different. So by the time I retire in 20-odd years, when I go to an Ord event, hopefully it will look completely different. Um, Cubo already does. We went to the Winter Conference last month, and it's fantastic. The diversity in terms of gender, ethnicity. And then there's also the, all the hidden things as well, isn't there, that you don't necessarily know, like neurodiversity. And there's, there's people with huge amounts of skills um, that have come up from a different traditional background, which are highly effective in their jobs. So... I think it's beholden on everyone involved in any recruitment process, whether you're the external recruiter or the internal HR team, to make those changes. Yeah. And I think from my perspective, as you know, somebody that helps people on their leadership journey, the more diverse that we can make our teams, the better performing we will be. 100%. Because, you know, you throw more things into the pot. And therefore, the, the innovation, the ideas come from that. So, in, and it starts, doesn't it? It starts with, right, who's coming in? Who's going to be part of that team? So, so definitely. Yeah, it's, it's diversity of thoughts, isn't it? And people coming in with, with different ideas. And, and I think on, on, the, on the ground in a university, you know, if you're in, in a security function, you, know, you want your security team to be representative of the students. So there needs to be more, more female security officers. There needs to be more female heads of security. There needs to be more leaders so actually if, you, if you're an international student coming across to a uk university you'd expect the security and the management team to be you know representative of you and, and i think that's the great thing about the universities are they're probably slightly ahead of the rest of society in, in terms of things like edi as well because you've got to have a diverse management team for a diverse community don't you yes absolutely couldn't agree more so before we move on to my 
two standard questions that I ask every guest. <laughs> I do just want to explore with you because when I got your your bio, it just yeah made my heart sing because obviously you have your work that you do, but you do a lot of work outside of that, you know, in terms of charity. Tell us a little bit about that and why it's so important to you. Yeah, so I'm a trustee of um, the Keith and Emery Foundation, um, which is set up by my um, uncle and aunt. So unfortunately, my cousin died many years ago. Um, he was on a, a gap year and fell down a mountain and died. He was the only child um, of my uncle and aunt. So they set up this foundation, which was really the kind of money they had set up for him, for his life. Um, things like you know, house deposit, um, yeah, his, his kind of future family that they had set aside. And, and what they've done is they've created an investment fund and they support um, Centrepoint in Manchester. Um, and what they've done is they've funded um, a whole mental health unit there. So they, they've got counsellors um, and mental health support workers that are working with um, the homeless there. And it's mainly focused on youth. So it's people that might be in care, might have been orphaned, lots of people with mental health problems that might have had problems with drug dependency or alcohol dependency. And Centrepoint are changing their lives. And um, my uncle and aunt support this. And, and, we're the, and we're the trustees. I mean, to be honest, we don't get that involved in, in the day to day. It's more about governance and making sure that the finances are well looked after and making sure that we adhere to all the, the kind of rules. But they do regular updates um, and you get case studies back from the kids that are, are having their lives changed as well. So they do these sort of reports on how Centrepoint have changed their lives as well. So it, it's, it's given a huge amount of solace to my uncle and aunt that have obviously gone through a huge tragedy and for our entire family, actually. But um, something good has come out of this. And, and yeah, it does make your heart sing when you when you hear about these things um, and you see how these lives have been changed, whether it's they've got a job or whether they've got into a home or, or just moved away from um, drugs and alcohol. And to hear those stories, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, I can't sing the praise of Centrepoint enough. Um, if anyone ever wants to support them, yeah, please do. They're a, a fantastic charity. Yeah, well, I will make sure their links go into the, the show notes as well. So if people want to donate, they, they can do. But, but thank you for sharing that because I always think it's really important to understand that we are more than the job that we do and we have this whole other life that it's great for people to see and understand that so thank you so back to my two standard questions <laughs> you have some great ones in the past so I'm not sure I'm gonna have to live up to this <laughs> you will you will when have you had to dive deep and what impact did that have so oh any, any of my colleagues that have listened to this will know what this is going to be but I got cancer in 2014 and that, that had a huge impact on me, both personally, but also in terms of work. And I, I didn't want to take huge amounts of time off work either. So I actually used work as, as my way to sort of battle through. And my colleagues were incredibly supportive, and um, as was the business at the time. But also, it, it made me realise as well, um, just the importance of higher education. So with the kind of cancer I had, which was thyroid cancer, they take the um, tumour out and then you get um, a radioactive dose where you have to go into the room by yourself for two days, you are literally radioactive and it kills all the cancer cells. Previously, it was a really high dose. Um, and then 20 years later, you'd have a really high chance of getting leukemia or lymphoma or secondary cancer. But what um, UCL did with cancer research is they did a big trial many years ago um, to reduce the dose by half, actually. Um, but it still killed the cancer. Um, but it lessened your chance of getting a secondary cancer, which which is fantastic. And at the time, I was doing a lot of work with UCL. So it was great for me because I felt like I was kind of giving something back. And I'm also doing some work with Imperial College at the moment, who are at the sort of forefront of um, leukemia, um, childhood leukemia as well. And unfortunately, one of my one of my best friends has just lost his 12-year-old son to cancer, So, which is just, just horrific. So the work I do with Imperial now, we're going to recruit a new director of estates for them. 
whoever goes in there will be providing the facilities for you know childhood um, leukemia research so so yeah the, the cancer for me was difficult at the time but actually now it's given me extra vigor really for for recruitment in higher education and and yeah it'll keep me in this sector now until the day i retire actually cause i'm just so passionate about it and every single person i, I recruit whether it's a, a facilities manager a director of estates a you know, head of health and safety every single person going in there is directly impacting to potentially saving someone's life so yeah difficult time but now it's given me a real passion and vigor and um yeah it's great well thank you for sharing that and you know 2014 yeah hitting that 10 year mark that that's incredible yeah it's a big one for me because in um in the cancer i had it spread to my lymph nodes so it had quite high reoccurrence rate but after the 10 year period that that completely sort of drops off so i can consider myself sort of in full remission so um yeah next june is going to be a big celebration <laughs> fantastic fantastic if i'd known that i would have delayed recording this and we could have put it out in june as a celebration <laughs> we, could do, we could do mini one <laughs> yeah yeah thank you for sharing that so when have you felt like a fish that climbed a tree the biggest one for me was in 2009 i, I just joined mrg and then there was a the credit crunch and the whole world um, came to an end and at, at the time i i just sold my house in in ealing um to build a property um in hampshire so i got plot of land to, to build a house so the kind of world was ending in terms of the credit crunch um everything ground to a halt and I was building a house and to say it was stressful would be an understatement. And I had a sort of project manager and it actually, it made me appreciate people who work in construction so much, yeah, project managers, program managers, because to try and coordinate all the different aspects of building a house was, was just incredible. So it was probably my biggest achievement actually was, was building the house and keeping it all going and even trying to get the drains connected and getting the electrics and the gas in was just a, a feat, just took months and months and building control and planning, um, it's the most stress I've ever been. It's probably taken me closer to the edge than anything I've ever done in terms of stress and um, sort of burnout. But yeah, I'm incredibly proud. We still, we still live here now and I'm not sure we're ever going to move actually because we, we enjoyed it so much and it's it's a kind of like you know, labour of love really. Oh, what a wonderful story. There was you. Oh, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to complete <laughs> other stories. But I'm like, okay, cancer and building your own house. They are two pretty big things. I mean, <laughs> how wonderful. I mean, Yes, I guess it gives you a real appreciation of the poor director of the estates and everyone else involved in the university that, that builds a new hall of residence. Yeah, I mean, it was the services which are the worst thing. You're trying to connect to the main drains and all the licenses and dealing with the various authorities was just horrendous and trying to drop a curb and just, just the minutiae around the legals was just incredible. So now I've got so, so much um sort of pride in anyone who works in construction in, in universities um yeah must be incredibly stressful but i couldn't do it myself i, I could not deal with it so it's, it's once only thing i'm never doing it again i'm never buying another property i don't own any other properties i'm, ne I'm never going to as well so this is a this is a one-off thing <laughs> i love that it's taught you where your boundaries are and where you will go and where you won't go <laughs> yeah like, like the kind of thought of being a property tycoon and buying properties and doing them up and selling them that's never going to be me i just can't do that i'm going to stick to recruitment it's a bit like me when my children were young and I used to drop them off at nursery, which was the most fantastic place, fantastic people. And I had so much appreciation because I was like, I could never do that job. And well, my wife's a teacher. And um, yeah, when you, you hear about what goes on in a classroom, yeah, very, very stressful. Um, very, very stressful. Totally, totally. So been a fantastic conversation. I knew it would be. I've been wanting to get you on this podcast for so long. So I'm so glad you finally agreed. 
how can people get in touch, find out more, find out about MRG? What's the best way for them to do that? They can either email me directly, and I'm sure you'll put the sort of show notes on there, or or via LinkedIn. I'm, I'm a sort of LinkedIn um, fanatic, so I'm, I'm always on there posting pictures of various university campuses, and I'm just obsessed with buildings, so I'm always uh, on there posting pictures. So anyone who wants to get in contact with me can contact me on via LinkedIn or, or via my email. That's no problem at all. Brilliant. I will make sure all the links go in the show notes. Just leads me to say a final, very big, very warm, heartfelt thank you for for today this conversation and for sharing what you've shared what final words of wisdom would you like to leave people with i think we just need to be a bit more confident in their careers um and i, I think sometimes people in facilities um, lack the confidence to take a step up i think people get pigeonholed in roles don't they and they stay in a certain role for too long and they might lack the confidence to move up or, or they might be in a modern university and lack the confidence to go to work for a russell group university for instance or they might be from the soft FM background, but don't want to go into a head of FM because they don't have a hard FM background. So I think have more confidence in yourself. And I think just to realise that it's the soft skills that are more important now rather than the technical background. So people that are coming up and deputies moving into a number one role, have a bit more confidence in yourself, I'd say. Don't allow a lack of confidence to hold your career back. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast with me, Mel Luizu. To help build our community of leadership listeners, please leave me an Apple Podcast five-star review. Remember, our fishy adventure doesn't have to end here. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram and Twitter. Links are in the show notes. Dive deep, climb high, can-do leadership in a world of can't. <laughs>